So, I'm Presbyter Elizabeth, and welcome to the Doxicon Seattle Writers Group Reading and Presentation. Um, what we're going to do is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Writers Group, and then we're going to take turns reading some things. Um, and then I need to ask everybody before we get started, so uh, my writers, are you okay with this being recorded? And this is going to be on the DocsCon uh, Seattle. It's going to be on the podcast. Am I right? Um, so what we typically do is the, our recordings we put um, we send to Ancient Faith Radio. Uh -huh. um, but what we could do is send is just have this piece just on the DocsCon Seattle website. We might be able to do that, um, and then not send it to Ancient Faith, uh, depending on what our writers want. Okay. So the the. The thing about it is it would be great to be able to have people listening to our work who are interested, who would access it because they want to see it. Um, and on the other hand, there are, if you want to submit your work someplace else afterwards, there are probably going to be some magazines or journals that are going to be really strict and say, we don't want anything that's out there in any shape or form at all. So um, if you could, writers, if you could please raise your hand if you are okay with the recording. Like so. Okay, and writers, could you raise your hand if you're not okay with the recording? Okay. Mostly because mine is already a shared copyright with some other third party. Okay. Mm. So, yeah. Okay, so that's just Hannah. So, um, Hannah, when you come, if everybody, when it's your turn to read, if you could come up here um, and then just just say, this is not for the recording, and they will edit it out, it out okay? All right. So last year we talked about the writers group getting started. We talked about how so many of us who like science fiction and fantasy and Christianity, we love writing things ourselves. And we've been writing things and we would love to share them together. And we talked about how as we are getting better at our writing, we would like to be able to submit them to get published someplace. Sometimes we get weird feedback that our, our pieces are good or bad in certain ways and we're completely puzzled and confused about feedback. So I thought it would be nice if we could get together, share our work together, and get feedback in a very supportive environment. That's okay. So what we, what we do, first of all, is we meet. We usually meet at the, um, at the, the Panera. On, it, on the Panera, okay, which is in Shoreline. And first, we just have some chit-chat and something to eat. And then we do a writer's prompt, which I've been organizing. I give a sentence or a picture, and then we have 10 minutes, which Robert times for us. He's our timekeeper. Mm -hmm. And we are not to do anything but sit there and write. And from these little bits of writing, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've gotten some really good ideas. And it's been really helpful. And some of them, I try to organize it so that they are things that are actually under a call to submission for some journal so that whatever you've written, you can actually use it and send it out someplace. Then what we do is we talk about our work. We might share the writing prompt or we share the work that we've been doing. Sometimes it's poetry, sometimes it's prose, sometimes it's science fiction, sometimes it's regular fiction, sometimes it's poetry. We have a file on Google Docs, which Robert arranged for us, because I'm not tech savvy at all. Mm -hmm. And we put our, our work in there the week before and then we read it out and then we give each other critiques. And their critiques are done very supportively, like this is working, this I really liked, or this part. I think the worst we might ever say is this isn't really working for me, I don't really understand what you're getting at here. Or I would like to know more about this. And the critiques that we've gotten have been, for me, extremely helpful, that I've gotten a kind of fully rounded critique from many different perspectives, which has really helped me to understand some ways where my writing really needs to improve, and then alternatively, some things where it's really accomplishing just what I wanted it to do. So it's been very, very helpful. And um, I've really appreciated the writers are so smart and talented and dedicated. It's been great. Okay, so the order that I have here is that if people feel shy, I will go first. But if not, then I have Tanya up first. Okay. Okay. So I'm just gonna read, I'm gonna read the names that I have here. I have Tanya, then Stuart, then Rose, then Tim, Hannah, then me, and Robert. Okay. And then if we have time, we can do some encores, or we can have questions. And then Robert's gonna sum up for us afterwards. 
Right. Okay. So one one piece, right? You have six minutes. Oh wow. Who, who's timing this? Robert I'm, is in charge. I'm the official timekeeper. Okay. Is, is there an official hand signal that will not be audible? Ten. Like, yeah, I could, I could give a one-minute warning. Would that work? Um, sure, but I'm not going to take six minutes. Okay. <laughs> but in general, I, I will I will watch and I'll wave when you have one minute. And, okay. And then it'll beep when you have when the six minutes. The beep is not a hard cut off; just sort of wrap up. Okay. Oh, and just to just to sum up, right now we are we are just reading out. We're not doing critique right now because with all of us it would take a long time to mm -hmm. do that. We're just reading. Just enjoy the reading, and after <coughs> we're all done, then we can have some questions and on course if it's possible. Okay. Um, so this uh, first piece is a a poem I wrote um, when I was at Durham Castle in England. Uh, Two years ago? Two years ago. Um, on the Feast of Transfiguration. And um, it was... Uh, it was incredibly magical. It's an amazing feeling to be in a place that is so old and that has so much history. And that was what really struck me. So um, uh, the poem is entitled, Bury Me. Um, when I die, bury me beneath a slab of stone in an old church covered in ancient roses, cloyingly fragrant, lingering along with my memory. Let my flesh rot and my bones crumble beneath waves of chanting and prayer. Let the inscription of my memory fade wiped away by the feet of worshipers who come after me, coming in and out upon my grave to sing, to kneel, to prostrate before the creator of all. Would that my lifeless body could be found worthy of a holy place, that it would still be willing to accept me who have failed so utterly in life, to repent, to find justice for others to reach the standards set by the old ones. I want to pray for all those whose knees bend in that house, whose foreheads touch consecrated, forgiving ground. I want to reach into the earth to touch God, to feed his creation, to finally not shy away from mercy. Let my bones be embraced by the roots of love, the source of forgiveness's sweet fragrance. Bury me in an old stone church, covered in climbing, verdant life, beneath a slab of cold stone, carrying my prayers into the souls of the worshipers above me. Um, this next piece is completely different. <laughs> Uh, um, I write, uh, for a while, and sometimes I still do, I write pieces that um, a lot of times my writing just kind of like erupts in my mind. It's almost like a visitation. Um, and this was the first piece that I did like this. Um, and uh, it came at the end, uh, I was a campground host at Zion National Park in Utah for about two and a half months, 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> and um, I, it came right, right at the very end of that time. Um, so it was kind of my love song to the desert. Um, but it, I took my dog out for a walk and I saw some eyes peeking at me from the tree line. And when I went back in the RV, this is what happened. <laughs> uh, so, <coughs> excuse me. Once there was a woman who walked barefoot in the desert, listening to the wind, going where it led her. Coyote saw her walking across the rocks and sand, 
amidst the sagebrush, sagebrush and juniper and pinon, and he fell immediately in love. He set about to seduce her. He tried everything he knew. He danced lightly on ledges, swishing his tail. He lay rabbits at her feet for dinner. She was flattered, to be sure, but not moved to love him. He tried harder. He gathered, he gathered berries for her breakfast. He chased away other suitors. Still, she could not love him. No matter what he tried, she would not respond to his overtures. So one night, alone and miserable, he began to wail. His friend, the moon, rose and Coyote poured out his love and sorrow. The moon argued with him, asking Coyote, why should this woman love you? Coyote told of all the acts of love he performed. They debated like this for hours. Meanwhile, the woman slept fitfully, dreaming of a lover who sang to her, sometimes in sweet, sad melodies, and sometimes in lively bursts of sound. She awoke to see the moon high in the sky. She still heard the song of her dream lover and set out in search of its source. She followed the song across snowy mountains and through dense, moist forests. She came to the edge of swamps. She trudged through the gutters of cities and followed the song across a frozen plain. Finally, she came back to the desert, to a canyon with red striped walls. Her lover's voice was closer, finally. His song was so lovely and sweet it made her heart break. Tears streamed down her cheeks for the first time. She sobbed so much, rivers formed in the dry washes and a flood came pouring forth. Finally, she cried out to his song, Here, I'm here, my love. Coyote heard a voice while he spoke with the moon. He stopped. He heard it again amid the rush of water. Here, I am here, my love. It was his woman's voice. He ran toward her, forgetting all about moon, who knew why he left even though he said nothing. He ran and ran until he found a canyon with water flowing, rushing madly through it. At one end of the canyon sat the woman he loved. She saw him and wondered why in the world Coyote was there. Then he opened his mouth and sang a song of love and desire. He sang of survival and fire and water and wind and blood. The woman heard him and felt her heart breaking again. She had loved him all along. Coyote and the woman lived together many years. She taught him how to weave, and he taught her how to rip the flesh from chickens. She showed him the cities of her people, and he showed her the badger with whom he hunted, and who sometimes was the hunted. She showed him the wastelands of her civilization's progress, and he showed her the paths he'd made across the land, taking her across his vast range. They curled up together at night, knowing that, eat, that they each must survive. One day the woman woke up and remembered a dream. She remembered a family and a house. She recalled that she used to sleep in a bed raised above the earth, not in an alcove beside a wash. She mentioned this to her love, Coyote. Coyote, darling, I, I seem to recall something. I once lived in a house and slept in a bed and wore clothes. Isn't that funny? But Coyote didn't think this was funny because he knew that the woman's people were calling her back, back to live with them, far away from the desert, far from canyons. He nuzzled her ear. The woman dreamed of her people and her old home for seven nights until warm, one morning she awoke and couldn't understand Coyote any longer. He talked and talked, cried and cried to her, but she was only frightened and confused. She wandered back from the rabbit brush and sagebrush, the juniper and pinon, back from the slick rock, deaf to the voice of the wind. She came back to the cities of her people, but with a haunted and feral look in her eyes. She is still there, wondering what she hears on the wind. Coyote has followed her to all the places she has gone, calling her, calling her, calling her. He peeks at her from the tree line. 
She sees his eyes glowing golden from the trees, and something vague stirs in her. She does not remember their life together, but her heart remembers his love and his song, and it still makes her weep and call out, Here! I am here, my love. Thank you. You get it. Next, Stuart. Okay, my name's Stuart. Um, <coughs> based on what uh, Tanya just read, I've decided to read something different from what I originally intended to, because I have a piece that I think follows on from hers. I like to write about odd people with strange perceptions, weird points of view. This is a how-to. It's called How to Run Mad. Run mad if you must, but listen first. Others have gone before and know the way. How the time goes by without event or regard when your mind is drenched in madness or prophecy. Be prepared to forget who you are, to grow dirty and hairy and old among trees or in desert or at the shore of the sea, until you are ungendered to civilized eyes, staring, not speaking, wary and alert and wild. When birds come to nest in your hair, when words are gone from your mind, when the world of sound and sight and smell presses in on you until you are forced shut. When day breaks in your eyes unseen, night falls in your ears unheard, rain wets you through unfelt, it will be time to return, to start the long and ragged walk back to the old world. Do not despair as you gather the pieces of yourself. It will be slow and long and grim, and each returning speck of mind or soul will ache and flame and slowly wake. Much that you have shed will never be found, but much will be added to you until you are a chimera, a particolored changeling, half wilderness and half yourself. When you return, do not expect to see the world with the same eyes you had, nor old acquaintances to see in you the one who left. The division between you and the world is the division between yourself and yourself. You cannot take up your old ways. You cannot fit where you once fit. What will you win by all this? The secret harboring of a wilderness, the slant-wise seeing of one who sits askew in the world, the antidote to comfort, the broken hole in the finely plastered wall, the rough escape from smoothness, the blackened nails that can claw a hole in the sky. And next, <coughs> uh, here is one that we workshopped together. It is about an ambiguous miracle. It is called Ceasefire. One stone blown out of the seaward wall, and the siege should have been over. The wall was breached, the keep was ours, for one moment, until a shout went up, and all faces, bloody or whole, turned toward the sea. The stone floated, bobbed, some unseen force drew it away, a miracle so cryptic that neither side dared claim the omen. And so the rarest of all outcomes came. Both sides lost heart, and a fearful peace descended. We drew together like frightened boys who hear dread things in the deep woods while playing at war, and look up to find they do not know this place they have come to. None among us could recall our quarrel in that hour, in the face of this strange conviction that the roots of the world were not strong enough to support our bloody games, that an abyss lay open beneath us, one step could plunge us in. And yet we could not see it, merely an awful translucency, 
as if our whole battle, war, and history were merely woven pictures on a tapestry grown rotten and crumbling upon some god's wall. And where are the people in the picture when the cloth is gone to dust? The miracle alone should not have stunned us so that we turned away from this, our war. We soldiers who had been bred up to it. There was some greater magic here at work. To float a stone away across the sea is easier by far than to make such armies see and know a new vision of the world. And one more. I have time for one more. This one's shorter. This is a poem that I wrote because I kept getting the painter, Henri Rousseau, mixed up with the philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I asked myself the question, what would be the natural religion of a lion? The poem's <laughs> called The Lioness. <clears throat> Day on the savanna is an inhaled breath between the brief, cool pants of dawn and dusk, a tawny silence aching to be broken by any sharp sound. I watch from a small shade. The giraffes browse among the treetops, within the rustling shadows of their leaves, in the high communion only they know. The antelope graze on the turf, in the broad light and rippling distance, what psalm the grass sings, only they know. The giraffes have their patient gods in the treetops, and the antelope theirs in the turf. Always and everywhere they are with them. But the faint scent of mine comes to me from some far place I do not know, fleeing and always further. Once I was a young hunter, and my worship was swift. And once, for one brief exalted leap, I had my teeth in the lean flank of heaven, but I couldn't bring it down. Hello, my name is Rose. I have two things to read today. I usually write prose, so go easy on my poetry. Um, this first one is a poem inspired by something a millionaire once said about millennials. I'm not rich, but I could be if I tried. My dad told me something when I moved out. Don't rent, buy a house. I told him, I have less savings than your attic mouse. I went to college, got my undergrad, then moved out early, made my parents mad. Cause I had to ask for money a couple of times, then I cut myself loose and was broke in no time. But now here's my anthem for when the bills run me dry. I'm not rich, but I could be if I tried. If I bought less avocado and made less toast, paid off all of those student loans, spent less money on my good doggos, I'm not rich, but I could be if I tried. If I got a second degree from a university or job in a profitable industry, but both of those need either money or debt, and I haven't done my FAFSA yet. So I'm not rich, but I could be if I tried. If I made more money and drank less wine, stopped spending money that isn't mine, dialed into God and got more dime. But I'd rather love the life I've made than gray my hair over a 401k. I'll spend money on friends and on the life I live. That's the millennial way, and this is my anthem. I'm not rich, and in the end, I don't mind. You can't enslave me to the nine to five grind, unless that's a job I want, in, in that case, fine. <laughs> hey mom and dad I'm still gonna rent but let me promise you this time it won't be your house and you won't bail me out I'll find a job that feels just right have friends over and drink more wine spread more avocado on whole grain toast spend lots of money on my good doggos my savings aren't rich but I am inside also can I borrow five just kidding <laughs> <laughs> This next one is the script for a children's 
picture book, but there's no pictures as you can see, so <laughs> just imagine. Once upon a time, there was a horse and his little knight. The horse was golden gate and he was spark sparkling white. The boy Galahad was short with the wide, widest smile, and when riding golden, they could travel through time. They could go to the future and give Galahad's grandnephews a ride. They could go to the past to see Grandma on Golden's mother's side. They could go to the future and watch the first fireworks on the 4th of July. They could travel way back and watch dinosaurs roar with jaws open wide. They could go to America and visit the wild, wild west, go see sheriffs and cowboys and outlaws and women's homesteads, go see natives and mustangs and prairie dog nests, go see schoolhouses filled with children anxious to test. They could go to the past right there in their town, a time called the Ice Age that they had found. They could see mammoths and saber-tooths and hear dodo bird calls, see glaciers scrape valleys and cavemen paint walls. As much as the two of them love, loved the old, neither dressed very warm and they got very cold. At the end of the day, Galahad went home with Golden Gate. He went to eat dinner on his favorite plate. He sat with his family and thanked God for them. Then he went to bed at this book's happy end. Good night, Galahad. Good night, Golden Gate. Adventures will come. You don't need to wait. So rest your eyes and don't waste a wink. Morning will come as soon as you think. Thank you. Well, my approach has been, I've never been a poetry guy, so I've been challenging myself to give it a shot. I mean, yes, all the epic stuff like Tolkien or Dante, but not, not real poetry. <clears throat> so I've got three pieces. I'll read them in reverse order of length, from shortest to longest. I'd originally conceived this nice three-poem cycle about rocks and stones, and the last one just never came together. But I got two of them done. Um, this one. So the first one is called Gravel. Buried in the memory of each and every pebble dwells the tale of its origin, the boulder, the mountain from which it broke. Blasted by tides, pried by roots, or shaken from below, tumbling and traveling from that place to this. Scoured by wind, washed by water, carried by beasts, rolling and sliding in gravity's grasp. Resting for a moment, until impatient feet casually kick aside the memory of a billion sunrises. Ah, the second one. It's called Just a Rock. The masons select the strong stones. Jewelers pick out shiny gems. Technicians sort out useful ores. They leave this rock on the ground. It's not a foundation or lintel or keystone, not even a brick in the wall. Too small for an anchor, too heavy to throw. It's just a rock on the ground. It doesn't have diamonds or rubies or pearls, no lapis or onyx or marble, no sparkles to glisten in sunlight. It's just a rock on the ground. No gold or silver in veins, no precious rare earths to behold, no tungsten or iron or tin. It's just a rock on the ground. Not circular, oval or square, an irregular, undefined shape. It won't fit the desired schematic, so it's left here alone on the ground. While the rest are carefully chosen for their beauty, potential, and strength, I'll watch and applaud their achievements while lying here left on the ground. And this third one is, uh, again, one that uh, has been tweaked a little bit since we shared it in our uh, workshop. It's called Witness. I watch as my wife nurses the new child, the child not my flesh, the child of no man, the child of God. And I wonder at the grace of God at being allowed to even watch and to be given the task of playing daddy to this holy boy. I watch, as I have done for years, 
for the foretold one at the holy place. So many years I have waited. There, it's her, it's him. And I sing a song of grace and praise to be allowed to see the one who will save the world. It's time to go. All I can give is words of hope and agony to come. And I am done, my life complete. I watch, my job well done. The criminals groan in agony as they deserve, except this one who's different. They say he's God or something. How would I know? But he's different. And all I can do is watch as he dies. I watch the crowd as I begin to speak. What can I say to make them see? But words do come, not mine, but his. And I watch God touch them with fire and hope. And I exult at the joy of being allowed to watch. This is um, The Tower, and it's a fairy tale. The afternoon sun shot through the window of my tower, splashed across the mountains of my hair, and exploded into the furthest corner like a star. It seemed the sun had chased the morning clouds away, and with them my dour mood. Perhaps today would be the day. A fresh breeze blew in, causing the hair on the floor to flutter back against the stone stone wall. <clears throat> I stood and shook my heavy skirts. Reaching around my neck, I grasped the river of hair streaming down and pulled it upwards, relishing the floating of my head. For the hundredth time, I contemplated sharing it, then thought better. I went to the window, drawing my cape of hair behind me, stepped up on the warm brick sill, tucked my skirts under me, and dangled my feet over the packed earth far below. A breeze tickled my arms and neck. I gazed out across the vast fields and forest, brushed with bright green to the mountains beyond. Summer was nigh. For a moment, I felt a tinge of loneliness. I wished I could share the glory of the day with a friend. I cooed and chirruped in the direction of the eaves. As expected, a pigeon wheeled down from the roof in a flurry and hopped to my side. He chortled and strutted, green and purple feathers sparkling in the sun. I pulled seed from my pocket and scattered it for him. The lonely ache subsided. I felt a hand on my shoulder. Mother. She had crept in, which meant she had not come to bring me supper or to ask how I fared. She held a basket of cherries toward me, inviting. I frowned and turned back to the valley. It had been many years since I had eaten them, and though she offered them every year, still I would not eat them. They reminded me of happy summers long ago and tempted me to reckless behavior. I could not afford to let my guard down. She sighed and set the basket on the round oak table near the tapestry with the lonely unicorn. The summer festival is tomorrow in the village. You know I cannot come. She gazed around the room. There will be many young men. You know I cannot meet them. She examined my needlework, running her worn hands over the delicate threads. This pillow, or this would make a fine pillow for your dowry. You know I cannot marry. Do not taunt me with delights of which I cannot partake. I heard her leave, but I kept my eyes on my folded hands. Suddenly weary, I rested my head against the stone and shut my eyes. The lonely wind whistled and tugged at my heart until I could feel tears beating up under my lashes. Then new voices joined the song, first a tune, then a chorus. I blinked and searched 
for the source. Yes, there it was, a caravan. They had emerged from the wood following the path, a traveling band of horsemen and coaches coming closer and closer. Their company carried bright flags and carts of goods for the market, and out in front, a knight escorted them on their journey. I caught my breath. A knight? Perhaps he was the one. I leapt from the sill and, taking parchment and charcoal, wrote the poem I had penned many seasons ago in anticipation of this day. I tied it to the pigeon's foot and sent him off in their direction. He was a speck before he landed in their midst. I watched them halt and gather to examine the note. Their excited voices carried up to me. Soon he was sent back. The parchment was gone, but something else flashed under his feathers. On tying it, I discovered a bracelet with beads of deep amber and sky blue. Fearing my saucy bird had helped himself, I sent it back. This time I watched him land in their midst and heard their laughter. Moments later, he ascended and returned, bracelet still in claw. A gift. I took it from his ankle and tied it on my wrist. The caravan drew closer. It left the path. It came straight up to my tower. My heart beat heavy in its cage. A figure in gaudy dress stepped forward, cradling a lute in his hands. Good lady, he shouted up. We would thank you for your gift. Unsure of my tongue, I merely waved. We come from afar and make for Camelin for the summer festival. You are welcome to share our journey. Finding my voice, I called down. You are most kind. Then before I could think a moment longer, I said, might I speak with the knight? Oh, you seek a rescuer, do you? Are you trapped in the tower, maiden? Although the words were addressed to me, they were spoken for the company's benefit. Laughter and hooting rose up from below. I was tempted to disappear from the window and hide in the darkest corner, but my need was desperate. Please, I am cursed. Only a knight can break the curse that has me bound. Sobering, the jester spoke quiet words with the knight. Slowly, reluctantly even, he swung his gleaming form from the white steed on which he rode and strode with heavy steps to the door below. The jester spoke again. Sir Hindred will speak with you at the cottage door, milady. Feeling like a pigeon chased by a hawk, I threw out a desperate reply. Sir Knight, I have been trapped here so long my hair has become like a river. I began to lower it through the window. Perhaps you can climb it halfway and we may, we may speak thus. Good lady, the knight spoke, voice muffled through his closed helmet. My armor is heavy and stiff. Can you not come to the door? The world spun around me. I laid my forehead on my arm and pulled air into my chest. He was right, of course. A flurry of desperate thoughts poured through my mind. It was no use. I would have to go. Breathlessly, I agreed and heaved myself toward the back of the tower. I pulled the unicorn tapestry aside, and there it was, the door through which I had entered the tower fifteen years before. It was green. I had not remembered that. I put a trembling hand on the knob and turned it. The door opened to a dark, cool staircase made of stone. I expected Mother to hear the hinges and come running, frightened out of her wits or weeping with joy. Neither of these came to pass. All was quiet. I set a tentative foot on the top stair. I set my other foot on the next step, then the next. I hugged the cool rock wall with both hands and descended the spiral staircase. My hair followed, swishing and slithering after me. There was another door at the bottom. It took me a moment to remember where the handle was in the dark, to push it down and shove it aside. I stepped into the room with the hearth, overwhelmed by the welcome billowing from the soup pot, the scents of chicken, celery, and onion. Mother was nowhere. Perhaps she had gone foraging for mushrooms. Memories were beginning to whisper from the shadows. I stepped across the room quickly and threw open the door. The night was there, more like a stiff golden scarecrow than a hero. Remembering myself in time, I curtsied. Sir Hindred, I asked. A muffled voice came from the mask. Milady, you wish to speak with me. Where to begin my tale? I am cursed, sir. I have been trapped in this tower for fifteen years. I seek a rescuer who would set me free. I have heard that only knights can save damsels in distress. What is your crime? My crime? No one is cursed to live in a tower unless they are guilty of a crime. Or perhaps it was your parents? No crime, sir. I am guiltless, as are my parents. Have you left the tower? No, sir. And what prevents your leaving? Was there no warning given when you entered, no terms under which you were forced to remain? Oh yes, there are terms. If I leave, I will be haunted. Haunted? Yes, by ghosts. The night was still and I wondered if he slept. Sir? He stirred. My lady, I seek a rescuer as well. Scarcely believing what was said, I took three breaths 
three breaths before responding, you, you seek a rescuer? I have not seen the world except through the bars of my helmet for the space of three years. I am in prison just as you. Oh, but can you not open it? Here, I will lift it for you. Quick as a bee, I lunged across the threshold and put my hand on his chin. Quick as a bird, two golden hands grasped my wrist and pushed me away. In his haste to escape me, his bulky figure nearly toppled to the ground. I ran to steady him. When he was finally restored to his scarecrow stance, I looked and saw that I had stepped outside the tower. I rushed back to the safety of the doorway. My lady, he began, this time sounding very sad. My lady, I cannot open my mask because... I waited breathlessly. Because you and I carry the same curse. The full meaning of his words echoed like thunder inside of me. I said nothing. My lady, there are no ghosts, are there? We stared at each other across the threshold. I felt as though no one had seen me, as clearly as the night with the cage for a mask. He spoke one last time. My curse can only be broken if I lift the mask myself. Your curse can be broken if you follow me. Then, wheeling on a golden foot, he hobbled back to his pure white steed. He regained his saddle, not without trouble, and led the caravan away from me to the path toward Camlin. My bird circled above them, cooing his goodbyes. My head and heart told me to follow them. There were no ghosts. There was no luck. If I told myself the truth, there was no curse. There was only my own fear. I watched the receding caravan and imagined slicing my hair off with the kitchen knife, sprinting across the field, shouting over the wind and the, and the birds' chatter. I imagined their welcome, their cheering. It would only take a few steps. It would only take one big moment of bravery. Taking the doorknob in hand, I gulped in a deep breath and closed my eyes, foot lifted over the threshold. Then I turned aside and made my way upstairs. Okay, um, usually poems come to me together with the novel that I'm writing. The poems I have in the little booklet outside go with my book, Forgiveness Sunday, and they're about themes of temptation, overcoming temptation, being victorious. These poems I'm going to read are from the novel I'm revising right now. It's called The Flight of the De Las Casas. It's about a woman who recovers from a severe depression and goes on an interstellar missions trip. The spaceship is called the De Las Casas, after Father Bartolomeo de las Casas, who defended the Native Americans who tried to defend them from the Spanish conquerors. So, um, two poems from there. This first one is called Solomonian, and he is the person, the first person that she meets when she gets to the other planet. A vertical stroke in his dark robe and cap, in a dark line of columns, in the shadows of columns, he's the only thing breathing. He breathes very seldom, but he is organic, no machine. His face is the same, his eyes are the same, his skin is the same, darker than our light and lighter than our dark. He smiles, his teeth are like little moons. He stands as we walk up. There is no clue that his aorta branches to a heart on the right, and his blood runs with gold instead of iron, a secret vein for the conquerors. Oh, protect him, set a veil around his sidereal system a second corona, a massive sunset, a golden hiding haze, an aureole around their sun. Well, this one was, that was published in Eye to the Telescope magazine and I received a princely sum. <laughs> so here is the next poem. This one is called Dinner on the De Las Casas. Um, the person mentioned, his name is Baldi. He's one of the characters who, he's insane in his own way, but anyway, he's one of, he is one of the crew on their way to the interstellar mission that they are doing. Baldi spilled salt on the dark blue tablecloth like the deep sky in a midnight fresco. God created our eyes to see only the stars of our own galaxy and one or two bright clusters from Earth. That's all we needed. Out here, we saw further, a little octopus of stars, wheeling on its own with no need of us, except as the inhabitants might incorporate our own hurricane of stars into their mythology and campfire tales. We are in an arrow. The De Las Casas is not a seashell, not repeating the pattern, but an invention, a made object, a boat, not a nautilus. Like a blind moth traversing that giant lamp of stars, 
which rotates so slowly we can't perceive it, but radiantly fast to itself, going in a circle, rolling and unrolling, curling and crashing as it goes on its own route somewhere, coming and going like the waves of labor crashing on the wet sand and gone. The stars look on our fluttery route, like tiny faces in shades of white on a blue tablecloth, their lights glancing off the professor's face from their millions of perspectives and casting blue shadows under his brows and chin. Thank you. So thank you to all our readers. Um, I'm not going to share because we only have a few minutes left and, and it would take too long. And I would much rather talk to you about the writers group and invite those of you who are not yet part of it to become part of it. Because um, I don't know about you, but I always find my own writing, A, gets more of a kickstart when I'm writing with other people, when I know I have an audience for my words. And also it just, so helps to hear back from that audience to hear oh what did you hear to to get a sense of this is the impact my words are having um, and as as Presbyter Elizabeth was saying the the feedback that we've been giving in this group and that we strive to give is truly constructive criticism it's saying this is what works and if something isn't working, why doesn't it work? How can we improve it? How can we make this piece of writing the best it can be? Um, most of us are hoping uh, and aiming for publication of some sort, and so we, we kind of have that in mind that we want to make this piece ready to be received for pub publication. And it's been tremendously helpful for me, and, and I, I hope for all of you as well. Um, we currently have one regular meeting. We meet about once a month uh, in Shoreline. Um, we have a, an occasional meeting in Bellingham. Um, and so we are thinking, depending on where people live, we may sort of have more than one regular meeting. Um, if we get too big, oh gosh, we may have to split into two groups. Wouldn't that be a wonderful problem to have? Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the goal is just to, again, meet on a regular basis, um, make sure that we are supporting each other in, you know, whether it's a job vocation or a calling within, you know, as, as a, at a hobby level, at a, a semi-professional level, whatever level God is calling us to write at, that we are supporting each other in answering that call. And answering that call to the best of the gifts that God has given us. So um, if you are interested in being part of the writer's group, um, can, can we use your notebook, Elizabeth? Um, yeah, yeah, we'll connect to the Facebook group. Um, but if you can, um, what is our Facebook group? I think it's just, Doxicon Writers Group. Doxicon Seattle. Yeah. Um, in any case, give us your uh, name, of course, email address, um, phone number if you like. Um, but uh, then we'll get in touch with you. We'll connect you to the Doxicon Writers Group on Facebook. Um, and it's sort of both through Facebook and through email that we keep in touch with each other. Um, will oh and the last thing i was going to see was we don't actually have our next meeting scheduled could we take a quick look at our calendar and see can we schedule a meeting for what is it february for march um would that do you not have your calendar with you oh okay well i i will start it and um, we've normally been meeting on Saturday afternoons, and so looking ahead to Saturdays in March, this is going to be, of course, in Lent for most of us, but we're not that celebratory when we meet, so it'll be okay. Um, so there are, um, 
Yes, yes, yes. There are four Saturdays in March. Um, we usually meet, haven't we usually met on the second or third Saturday? Do you recall exactly? Uh, it's, it's, it's been around. a little unusual yeah. around the holidays, so. Uh, it's floated around, I think, right around the second or third. Do we want to try the 14th or the, let me make sure. Just so you know, the 14th yeah. is, um, that weekend is Emerald City Comic Con. Oh, okay, so let's not do that. Any Saturdays again. Maybe the 21st? Does yeah. the 21st look good for everybody? Okay, so let's pencil in our next <coughs> writers group meeting, regular writers group meeting, Shoreline Panera, March the 21st at, what do we say, 2 o'clock? 2 to 5. I'm putting it on my calendar. Doxicon writers group. Woohoo! Yeah, it's right on the county line. It's I, I guess it's technically Edmonds or something, um, because it's on the north side of the street. Um, <laughs> That's pretty much how Edmonds works. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and as I said, if you are if that is not a convenient location for you, let us know what would be a more convenient location for you. As I said, we already have an occasional meeting up in Bellingham, so I know, for example, Deacon, you're in Vancouver area? I'm, I'm Mission, British Mission, okay, so so that would be a, a bit of a drive, but less of a drive than Shoreline. If it were a Sunday morning in Bellingham, I could do it, but an afternoon, okay. maybe home in time for Sure, sure. Well, perhaps, a, anyway, we'll... we'll we, we can see what, what people's availability is, and, and we'll see if it makes sense to start up another either regular or occasional meeting. Any, any we, yeah, we should get back to the main session quickly, but any questions or thoughts or concerns or conundrums about the writer's group? Well, once again, thank you so much to all of our writers who read. You guys are amazing and an inspiring to me, inspiration to me, and I hope to everyone else here. So, hurrah and God bless you. Yay.